In a moment, I hope you'll see why uh, in starting a series around the book of Romans, we've read from the Acts of the Apostles. We're going to look a little bit about what ro- uh, uh, at some of the text of Romans as well. Um, can you switch across, uh, Jim? Just um, Great. Okay, here we go. I'll explain what that picture's about in a moment. It's the beginning of a new year, as Dave said, and here we are uh, with our expectations for 2017 and our hopes, and some of us set New Year's resolutions yet again, and some of us didn't bother because we know that it doesn't work, and uh, some of us who set them are already failing at them, and some of us are clinging on, but we've changed them and adapted them and revised them over the uh, few days, the 10 days that we've had since we made them. But this is a moment, as Dave said, and as we prayed, for setting new directions. It is a moment for that. And it struck me, as we went through last year, that there was no better book in the Bible to look at if we're discussing that theme, thinking about it realistically, than the book of Romans. I'd like to explain why in a moment. The fact of the matter is, though, that the reason so many of our New Year's resolutions fail is some of them are unrealistic in the first place. But underneath it all, we're bogged down by an inability somehow to escape the story that we live in. That's why this series is called Inner Story. It struck me that instead of having yet another New Year's uh, communion service where we all say, yes, we're going to do a bit better than we did last year, We ought to think a little bit more deeply. We ought to examine the psychological and the social and the spiritual reasons, the psychosocial spiritual reasons, why we get stuck in a particular story. And that story comes to dominate our lives and we just can't get free of it. I'd like to talk about that over the next four weeks. Over the next four weeks, we're going to take a serious look at the book of Romans, which I believe offers us huge help in that area. Now, that's the next thing. I told somebody in the church here that I was going to look at the book of Romans, and they were pretty cynical about it. Because we have to understand, I'm sure many of you do, that the book of Romans has been used to demonize people. It has been used to condemn people. It's been used, perhaps more than any other book in the New Testament, for Christianity to be seen as a a book, as a religion of rules and regulations. It's been used to create guilt, and it's been used to, uh, to back up a rejection, to legitimize a rejection. And I also know that there are some of you sat here right this morning who have been rejected in churches because of some of the teachings in the book of Romans. That's why we need to think hard about this book. It's been used as an anti-woman document. It's been used as an anti-gay document. And it's been used as an anti-fun document. So what better book is there to start the new year with than the letter that Paul wrote to the Roman people? 
It is, of course, one of the most famous documents in the whole world. It's discussed and debated endlessly around the world. There are literally hundreds of commentaries written on this book, this letter. And there are thousands and thousands of documents about it. There is a movement within uh, Christianity which is called the New Perspective on Paul. I, growing up in a church in South London, used to listen to uh, uh, Romans read and trying to read through the Bible and be a good Christian, I got bogged down in Romans as sadly as I got bogged down in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It was just so dense. It was just so overwhelming. It was just so crowded. There are endless ideas and arguments thrown up by Paul and the terms like the wrath and the anger of God and judgment come punching their way through all of the time. And I already felt like I really wasn't very much of a Christian and I wasn't really doing very well. And this was like the document to polish me off altogether. So over the years, there's been this movement which is called the New Perspective on Paul. So I throw that in simply because there will be those of you who want to study this a little bit further. So you should study what's called the New Perspective. Like everything in theology, it ain't that new. Um, The New Perspective on Paul, the first writers about the New Perspective on Paul wrote in the 1970s. And the truth of the matter is that theology in churches is often half a century behind theology. What Christians in churches believe and say, some of it's like, woo, away with the fairies, isn't it? And it slags so far behind the cutting edge of theology. Theology is an expanding and changing science, just like biology etc., etc., zoology, archaeology. What we know and we believe and understand now because of the hard work that was done in the past is different to what was known and believed in the past. What we know and understand about theology because of the hard work that's been done over the centuries is different to what was believed centuries ago or 50 years ago. We've moved on. If the Church of England hadn't moved on in its theology, the Queen would not be the Queen. Prince William would be a minor royal. We wouldn't be able to remember Kate's name and William, well, you know. But because of the Church of England's theology or theological understanding uh, uh, at the time when, uh, at the, time, uh, when the Queen's father rose to the throne, his brother was unacceptable because he wanted to marry a divorcee. And the Church of England and government believed that the Bible taught that this was wrong. No one who was divorced could get remarried. We've moved a long way from there and some of you are the beneficiaries of a deeper, more generous, more biblical understanding. So we've got to move on constantly move on. It's all about context. I wondered, um, I'll explain that thing about the trees in a minute. Here are some quotes. All right. I'd like you, can you see them? Yeah. I'd like you to talk to the people next to you, around you. 
who do you think said these? To, uh, think about it. Um, perhaps in a little group of three or four, you'll be able to come up with them all. Right, turn around. Can you come up with any of them? If uh, not of all, you'll be able to see that. Read them out to each other. And who said these things? Go. Okay. I don't know how you got on, but... Um, well, uh, these are the answers. The first one, no matter how long you've had a dream, it can still come true if you persevere. Sounds a bit like Martin Luther King. These are all lesser known sayings of the people. Sounds a bit Martin Luther King-ish, doesn't it? About dreams and things. Perseverance, big issue. Anybody up for who said this? Let me give you the answer. Kim Kardashian. <laughs> That's inspiring, isn't it? I'll go through them all. Uh, the next one, uh, the next one, which uh, simply said, um, "The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is an attribute of the strong." Was Mahatma Gandhi. The next one, I've come too far, I don't know how to get back. Anyone? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> it was a bit like that. Elvis Presley. <laughs> next one, one of the key problems today is that politics is such a disgrace. Good people don't go into government. Donald Trump. <laughs> right, here we go. If you can make a woman laugh, you can make her do anything. Donald Trump. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> and the last one is, remember that God has enabled you to become an example of love, of forgiveness, and of brotherly coexistence. Anybody? Saddam Hussein. The point about all those quotes is this. Context is everything. The words have one meaning until you know who said them. And once you know who said them, and intuitively you understand something about their life, you know about Kim Kardashian, you know about Saddam Hussein, you know about Mahatma Gandhi, you know about the tragedy of Elvis Presley's uh, life. You know about these people. And instantly, when the name is put to the quote, the quote changes its meaning and its shape in the context of the life of the person who said it. We understand Donald Trump. And therefore, well, perhaps we don't, but, <laughs> but we understand a little bit of who he is. And therefore, that those quotes change their shape and their meaning and sometimes the irony or sometimes the depth of what is said because of the person who said them. It's all about context. Lift a little quote out of its context and you can make it mean almost anything. 
Rob it of the context of the culture into which it was said, the time into which it was said, and of course the person who said it and their life. So some words that sound inspiring on the lips of Saddam Hussein are different to those same words on the lips of Martin Luther King, for instance. It's all about context. Back to our forests. You can't see the wood for the trees. Sometimes the way we study the books of the Bible is we get so up close to individual verses, individual trees, and we stare at the tree, we don't see the wood. We get confused. We don't see the big picture. We don't see the wide picture. We don't see the wood. We just see the tree. I was talking to Jerry earlier in the week, um, and uh, Jerry was telling me about um, a friend of his who was flying into London. And as they flew into London, which they'd only ever seen in pictures of city pictures, you know, of buildings and concrete and roads and skyscrapers, the city and etc., etc., they flew into London. Over, overhead, they saw all of the woodland. London is actually 25% woods and green. Amazing. If you fly into London, I'm sure you've seen that. It's a lot greener than it looks when you're down here. The problem is that the way we've been taught to read the Bible is this verse must mean something. Rather than who said this, why did they say it, what was the context how does it fit together in terms of their life? And there's been no book, perhaps, that's been more abused, uh, no book of the library that we call the Bible that's been more abused than the book of Romans. Here are four free quotes from Paul. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Here's another one, Romans chapter 9, verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the, the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? Here's the last one. Consequently, Romans 13, <clears throat> consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. <clears throat> and I know that those verses, and there are many of them, pretty much sum up for a lot of people the book of Romans. Somebody said to me, I was talking about the book of Romans and saying what a book of joy it was. And I could tell by the expression on their face, they just thought I'd gone mad. It's all about context. This new perspective on Paul. Now, when I tell you about the new perspective on Paul, this is another little theological bit for those of you who are into this. Uh, Tom Wright, or N.T. Wright, as he's known, if you've not heard of that name, he's not a footballer, he's a theologian. But N.T. Wright is, is, he stands on and in the, the new perspective on Paul. It was begun by some theologians back in the 70s, the, the 80s, the 90s, and Tom Wright, 
um, became a student of these people and he, over the years, has become one of the chief exponents of the new perspective on Paul. The second thing to say about the new perspective on Paul is that it's good to have a new perspective because we've got to keep learning. There's always been a new perspective on Paul. What actually happened is Romans was written uh, by Paul. It enters uh, the the library called the Bible. In the 4th century, a guy called Augustine of Hippo, a huge um, theologian, he reworks Paul, and he reworks Paul, and he adds the concept of original sin. You've heard of that. It comes from the fourth century. It comes from Augustine. He, uh, he built that into. Um, he built that into an understanding of Paul. He had a new perspective on Paul. Um, A thousand years later, Martin Luther, the German monk who was working under uh, all the problems that the church then had, the church in Rome then had, and the way that it it was uh, abusing people, not that all Catholicism was wrong by any imagination, but there were things that had gone wrong. And Martin Luther, this monk, he's got a new perspective on Paul, and his understanding of Romans was what really guided him. And he said, we're saved by faith alone. He reread Paul. So as Paul had been reread by Augustine, who'd added original sin and all of those concepts. So a thousand years later, it's reread in this cataclysmic new way by this guy called uh, Luther. And Christianity is reshaped and it changes again. Is this away with the old and in with the new. No, it's digging into the old and trying to understand a little bit more deeply what it was always about and what it's uh, saying to us. The third thing to say about the new perspective on Paul is there isn't one new perspective. It's slightly misleading. If you want to do some homework on this, and I suggest you do do some homework on this, uh, you'll find out there's all sorts of people who believe all sorts of things because it's evolving and we're grappling with this book and we're grappling with the whole Bible all of the time, aren't we? We're always grappling and so there are lots of people who would speak about the new perspective on Paul and they've all got their differences with one another. And that's a kind of big thing to grow up into, isn't it? That the Bible is something we need to wrestle with and debate. We've talked about that in the past. If you want to know more about that, there's a whole series we did. Uh, I think it was called Making Sense of the Bible a couple of years ago. And I'm sure we've got, uh, got all of that there. We have to grapple with the Bible. We can't get stuck uh, uh, where we are. So Paul, actually, it turns out, Um, is somebody that we need to look at, and as we look at him, we find out a little bit more about what he said. I want to tell you some things about Paul very briefly, and that's why we had a reading from Acts and not from Romans. We will read from Romans in the next three weeks. Paul lived, of course, around about 2,000 years ago. He lived slightly after Jesus. He never knew Jesus. He never met Jesus. Although we call him an apostle, he never had an encounter with Jesus in the flesh. Instead, the story of how he became a Christian is the one that we just read, uh, Roe just read from uh, Acts chapter 19. We'll talk about that in a minute. The second thing we know about Paul is he was a Jew. But he was a Jew who was born in the city of Tarsus. It said that in the reading that we read. It says that in several places in the New Testament. Saul of Tarsus. Where is Tarsus? It's in Turkey. Still exists. It's in Turkey, uh, modern Turkey today. But Tarsus was a university town. 
It was a, uni a Greek university town. It was a town full of intellectuals. It was cosmopolitan. It was multicultural. It was multi-faith. It was all of those things. Paul, um, Saul as he's called here, because his name changes from Saul to Paul, and we'll find out about that later, but he's called Saul. He grows up in Tarsus, and uh, because of that, this being in this busy metropolitan city, he becomes a speaker as a Jew of Hebrew and as a, a Roman citizen, because he was a Roman citizen of Greek, so he is bilingual. He is, he was a brilliant thinker. Some of you will have very negative views of Paul. My view of it's this, uh, of him is this, you, you know, his thinking, his capacity, his revolutionary, his radical approach to um, life and thinking is quite extraordinary, which is why we have 13 books in our, uh, in our New Testament that claim his name, seven of which, by the way, we know were definitely written by him, including Romans, but there are others that people dispute. Were they written by him or someone else, one of his disciples, fearful of putting their name and not wanting to over-egg themselves, they put Paul's name to what they were writing. Not in an attempt to cheat us, but there was this thing, that long name, that you may have heard of this, it's called pseudepigrapha. And pseudepigrapha meant this, that you know, if I wrote a book today and put J.K. Rowling's name on it, I'd be trying to deceive you. But actually, back then, if you were a follower of J.K. Rowling and you put her name on your novel instead of your name, it's seen as an honor. It's not seen as a way of trying to trick anyone. It's just saying, like, this woman has inspired me. I don't deserve my name on. I put the name of my teacher on my book because it's for them. And some of the books that say they're written by Paul, people will say are Pauline. That means that they are written by disciples of Paul. But there's seven at least that everyone agrees were written uh, by him. So he was born in Tarsus, uh, Tarsus this uh, university town, and he was a deep thinker. And Tarsus was a center of philosophy. So, um, you know, Paul grew up on Homer. For him, Homer was like the Old Testament to us. He grew up on Plato and Aristotle. For him... It was like the New Testament to us. Homer lived a long time before Plato and Aristotle. You know, Plato had a disciple called Aristotle, great thinkers, extraordinary thinkers. But they lived, um, they, they lived um, a lot later than Homer. So Homer's were like the Old Testament. Aristotle and Plato are like the New Testament. And Paul is immersed in all of this. But because he's a Jew, he's also immersed in the Old Testament as we call it, the Hebrew Bible, to give it its proper title. He's also immersed in all of this. He gets it. He understands it. And around um, uh, this city, this city of Tarsus, hung, uh, uh, hung about a lot of philosophers. It was the home of the cynics. When you say, I'm a cynic, you know that the cynics were, were actually a school of philosophy, not just a, you know, a miserable British attitude. You know, so... Uh, Cynics was a school of philosophy, and it was, it was centered in Tarsus. Um, the Stoics and the Epicureans, people that Paul gets to meet on his travels, they were based there. Epicureans were like a street edition of the Stoics. Um, the second thing we know about 
Paul, besides being born in Tarsus, was he was a tent maker by trade. This guy got his hands dirty, he got involved. He wasn't some academic living lofty up there. He got on with it. You know, the fact is that if you don't understand it in detail, down on the ground in at least one place, whatever you write in your PhD about, whatever it is, will be wrong. You have to understand stuff, life, don't you? And the best academics are the ones that can shed all the long terms because they understand real stuff. Who knows more about love? Someone who's done a PhD in love at Harvard and then post-PhD studies uh, following that and now has a professorship in love but lives alone. Or a 15-year-old single parent girl who lifts her young baby in her arms and looks down and weeps over it and vows that she will protect this life. Who knows more about love? You've got to dig down into it. Paul was a tent maker, not some professional sitting in a chair in a great university. He did the two things. He bridged the two worlds. The last thing we know about Paul, well, we know lots more, but the last big thing, important, is that he was a Pharisee. Pharisees were zealots. In fact, Paul himself, the, the, the term zealot was, uh, was formal, but Paul says of himself in one of his letters, he says, I am zealous for the traditions of my fathers. I want, I wanted Judaism to stay as it was. Therefore, he saw Christians as a huge threat. He was a policeman patrolling the boundaries of Judaism, making sure that they did not break down ever. And he was going to stamp down on anyone was, who was slightly liberal about any of this. And that's why he persecuted Christians. And in the story we read together, he's on his way to, uh, he's on his way to do his job of persecuting Christians. He's on this Damascus road. Now, of course... The Christians aren't yet called Christians. Did you notice that? It said that Saul was on his way to persecute followers of the way. The way is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. The term Christian is only ever used three times in the New Testament, and it's always used to ridicule followers of the way. It was never a term that the followers of the way adopted. The, the way was the way of life, which was Judaism, uh, the book of Isaiah talks about walking the way of holiness, the way of the Lord. Jesus came and said, I am the way. I'm the way to really, in- I am the way to really interpret this way of life, which is Judaism. And the followers of Jesus called themselves followers of the way. That's how it was. So Saul's on his way to persecute the followers of the way. They're not yet called Christians. What they are is a Jewish reform group. And Paul doesn't like, Saul doesn't like Jewish reform groups because he wants stuff the way it's always been. And these Christians, you know, the church was in Jerusalem. They were all Jews. They had revolutionary new ideas and he really didn't like it and he was going to squash it. And he was going to squash it for two reasons. You see, this Jewish reform group this Jewish reform group was beginning to involve other people in it that weren't Jews. So, if you read through Acts, the story we read of Saul's conversion follows the story of a guy called Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch who Philip allows to join the church. This Jewish reform group is breaking down the borders and it's allowing 
Ethiopians, Africans in. They're not Jews. And he's a eunuch as well. There are two counts for why this man cannot join a Jewish group. And they're beginning to eat with Gentiles, with people who are non-Jews. He doesn't like it at all. And he's on their case. And he's going to polish them off. The other reason I think that he persecuted the Christians is a deeper one than this. You see, Paul believed in a Messiah. He knew, believed the Messiah was coming like all Jews. He believed the Redeemer was coming. He believed the Liberator was coming. He believed. He believed. But the Christians believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And the problem with that was that Jesus was crucified as a criminal. Jesus was crucified and he died. He was weak. He wasn't the Messiah. So Saul knows that he's got to squash this cult before it erodes what Judaism is altogether. But in this story, he's blinded. He's on his way. He's on his horse. He's knocked off. He sees this great light and he hears Jesus speaking to him. And his life is turned around, turned around completely. Now, over the years, you know, I've read all sorts of stuff about this and people say, oh, this couldn't have possibly happened. He couldn't have seen the light and he couldn't have heard the voice of Jesus speaking to it. I mean, it must have been some psychological thing going on, etc., etc., etc. I think, actually, as a human race, we've come past all of that. And we know that, don't we, from our own experience. God breaks into our lives sometimes and he gives us a revelation and we see something that we've never seen before. And the evidence that something cataclysmic happened to Saul on this road is simply this. Read the rest of his life story. He's miraculously changed. He's never again the same person. Do you know he traveled over 10,000, he had three great mission journeys out around the known world. He traveled over 10,000 miles on the transport of the day. He tells us that he was shipwrecked and he was flogged and he was without food and he, he traveled 10,000 miles. Something so big happens to him in this one event that it transforms his life and it gives him the energy to spend the rest of his life around the world, spreading this message and starting churches. By the way, the churches that Paul started were all what we call revolutionary cells. They weren't like this. They weren't like big buildings. They weren't, didn't have any buildings at all. These were small cell groups of revolutionaries who believed a different message about what history uh, was centered on. They wanted to live a different way. So this was Paul. Not only does Saul join the church, but he transforms the church. He transforms the church. Um, I'm going to, there's so much to say that I'm not going to say everything I've got to say. There are three main themes to Paul's teaching, which is most systematically set out in Romans, but it's set out elsewhere as well. Paul comes to believe that there is one God. He believes in monotheism. Up until then, you know, the Jews had believed that they had to be a light to the nations. They were pretty ambiguous about what it meant to be a light to the nations. At best, being a light to the nations meant that anyone could join in on God's big story as long as you became a Jew, as long as you got proselytized, as they called it, as long as you became like one of them. In fact, they had a program set up for how non-Jews could become Jews. Once you were a Jew, you were in. 
and the God of Israel could be your God. God's story was one big story, but it was a very Jewish story. What Paul, Saul, realizes is that God is the God of the whole earth. He's, he's, a, he's a law, he's a policeman. He dishes out the law. He lives by the law. And he thinks he's 100% right and God's on his side. And then he hears Jesus and he sees this light and he realizes he's wrong. And under the law, he expects to die for being wrong, but he's not killed. Instead, he's shown grace. If you read any of Paul's letters, do this this week. You'll find out that in the first few verses, Paul always said, says something like, Paul, an apostle, by the grace of God. He never gets past the first paragraph without talking about grace. For this one moment has transformed his life. And he's realized that the law of, that he's always been addicted to The law is not a way of getting to God. You can't serve God by keeping laws. He actually argues in Romans that the law only makes it worse. We're all kind of failed. We're all messed up. And then the law comes along and the law makes it worse for us because it just reminds us of how little we do and how far we are from what we should be. And he realizes that we're actually rescued by God's grace, every single one of us. And what's true for him as a Jew is true for every person in every race. One God, monotheism. He, believe, he comes to believe that there's one people, election. You know, election is one of those funny um, theological words. People say, oh, some people are elect and some people aren't. Some people are saved and some people are not. Some people are predestined for heaven and some people are predestined for hell and all of that. All of this is weird stuff and it's not from the Bible. It's just all that stuff that grows up. Paul comes to see that everyone is elected. Everyone. As in Adam we all die, he goes on to say in Romans uh, chapter 5. As in Adam we all die, so in Christ everyone finds like everyone everyone this is a universal thing Paul is the universalizer he is the great universalist which is what compels him to go on on all his missionary trips he wants to go tell everyone why does he want to go tell everyone because there's no time to lose we got to tell people that the that history has shifted it's upside down now rules are no longer the name of the game grace is everywhere we got to go tell everyone that there's grace for everyone and the last is one hope eschatology that's the study of the end times and what Paul comes to believe is there's one God who is love and he's on our side that we are one people, we are globalized. He is the original globalistic thinker. He thinks of everyone as being involved by this God of love who he now sees in the Old Testament. He now sees that God was always the God of all the people. But the Jews had kind of lost it. They got it and lost it. But he now sees we're all one people and with one hope. And the one hope we read of is that God is renewing the earth. So all of you campaigning about all of these big issues, they're important issues because God's not a 
abandoning the earth, he's renewing the earth. As we campaign against elements of poverty, as we fight for decent housing, as we think about animal rights, I'm looking at Daryl and all his friends, as we think about justice at every level of society, this is the one hope. And that's what Romans is about. So, three verses from Romans. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, not by us keeping the rules, since all of us have been justified by faith, we have peace with God for our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith, not by doing stuff, into this wonderful grace in which we now all stand. Here's another one, Romans 5.18. Consequently, just as one trespass, that was the story of Adam, resulted in condemnation for all people because we all lived under these rules that made us feel worse and worse and worse and worse. So also one righteous act, the life of Jesus, not just his death, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus has resulted in justification and life, freedom, hope for us all. And here's another one. Therefore... Uh, uh, therefore, there is now no condemnation for anyone, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we talk about what that means in another week. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free. It's the law of the Spirit. And the law of the Spirit is, we're forgiven, there's hope. God's gracious. It goes on. Paul goes on. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, he's saying to everyone who's a follower of Christ, we're the first, we're the beginning of this big thing that God's doing. He's saying it to us today. We, here in Waterloo, we're the beginning of this big thing that God's doing. That's why we work in this community. That's why you work in your task, in your job. When you go to work tomorrow morning, you're not just earning money to stay alive and, you know, feed the cat or whatever when you go to work tomorrow morning you're going to bring in the kingdom of God you're going to fight for justice you're we are the first fruits of what's happening the renewal of the whole earth it's pretty good isn't it yeah don't you think that's what you're actually about in your place of work and if you're not about that in your place of work you either need to rethink your attitude to where you're working or rethink where you're working. You've got to, does, does that make sense? Does it? Yeah, good. So, there you are. So, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. We're groaning, it's frustrating, isn't it? As we wait eagerly. For in this hope we are saved. But hope is, is that, we, uh, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul's reminding everybody, we're yearning and groaning and working after this new world, which is for everyone, because the one God of love is on the side of everyone, and it's frustrating to wait, and it's hard to work at this. But that's what hope is. Hope and frustration are the same things spelt differently. That's what Paul's saying. So you see, if you look at one verse, you can end up blind. If you begin to see the big picture, uh, it takes us in a different direction. So what can we do about this as we go? I've got some suggestions. One, why don't you read the book of Romans this week? 
Why don't you actually read it? I don't mean skim read it so fast that you don't absorb it. I mean read all of it, even the bits that you really you make you feel very uncomfortable and begin to try to see the wood, not the trees. And perhaps begin to see the ways in which that text has been abused. An epistle of destruction for people rather than of grace and hope. Maybe one of you would like to uh, come and, you know, in, in the old days they used to just say, give your testimony. What about next Sunday if there's something that you've learned from this morning or you can see about this morning that you've learned through this year? Why don't you just um, text me or, or um, email me or Nathan or somebody, uh, Dave or someone's email you got or speak to me afterwards. Why don't you, before I speak next week, just tell us what you're learning about what it is to be part of this big revolutionary movement so radical that it's committed to changing uh, the whole world. If you'd like to know more, why don't you come to Being Human with Dan in the coffee shop on Wednesday if you're not part already of a small group, a house group, and you'd like to get involved and you'd like to know more about this church, half seven with those wonderful biscuits and drinks, I'm sure, in the coffee shop and a chance to dig more deeply into this and uh, many other things. The truth is, if you play the piano but you don't practice, you lose the ability. If you play the violin but you don't practice, you soon lose the ability. If you're a footballer but you never, um, you, you never train, you lose the ability. If you write but you never write, you lose the ability even to control your wrist, if, you, if you're aware of that. You either use it or you use it. Lose it or you use it. And we either, we either use our ability to think about the Bible in a mature and grown-up fashion and be inspired to live for Christ, or we turn living for Christ into a thing you do for an hour on Sunday with some songs at the end before you have a cup of coffee and go home and get on with the rest of the week oblivious. And then we slowly lose our spirituality. Because spirituality was never meant to be about talks like this, only in as far as they inspire us to live it out on the ground and really do it. So this week, how about reading Romans? How about reading all the way through um, Romans? Easy to do, actually. You, you do it, you know, you do it in three quarters of an hour if you stop and think about it. I mean, you know, you can take that three quarters of an hour and you can really explore it. Why don't you do that this week? Why don't you come back next week and say, I want to say something about what I'm learning? Because that would be great if you want to. Why don't you come to the Being Human course? Just three ways of getting involved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that as the church here in Waterloo today, we stand on 2,000 years of church history people constantly grappling with what it means to follow the God who is the God of love, the God of all people, not the tribal God, but the universal God. People constantly grappling with what it means to remove the barriers, working in their own generation to confront the issues their generation faced. Help us be in the first fruits of your coming kingdom to work this week in our places of work, in our, in our home spaces, to be those who bring in the light of your love and your purpose 
we commit ourselves again to following you.